Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Hosea. And what I've done with this is Tim Keller preached an incredible sermon on the book of Hosea. Uh, just on the first three chapters, it's in a note here, a footnote. It's called The True Bridegroom. It's available for free download. I highly recommend you get that. The True Bridegroom is way better than anything else they can get. But I'm going to use Keller's outline for the first three chapters. And then I'm also going to use some of, some of his points, but I've added on for quite a bit. So uh, what he would say is, Hosea tells you that our relationship with God is like a marriage. Secondly, our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. And then thirdly, how God heals marriage and what it costs. If that sounds like it comes from the sermon, that's because it does. Okay? Now, i got an experiment to do, because before we get into the Bible, I have a reading from popular culture. And I'm, I'm genuinely curious about this. I'm going to put the lyrics to a song on the screen. This was a rock blues song that came out in 1970. So give me clues already. I really want to see how many of you recognize this song. Like I said, I'm genuinely curious about this. So if you recognize the song, you don't shout it out. Don't say it Don't say it out loud. Just raise your hand quietly if you recognize the song. We'll see who, who can get this in no notes. Okay? Here we go. 1970. I want to tell you about the girl I love. Oh my, she looks so fun. She's the only one that I've been dreaming of. Maybe someday she will be all mine. Got one? Want to tell her that I love her so and thrill her with every touch. I need to tell her she's the only one I really love. Okay, we got two. Three. Okay. To this point, four. To this point, it's five. All right, is anyone else? Okay, I've been helpful. That's great. I'm sure you that. So, the, uh, um, so this point is sweet little love song. Right? It's a sweet little love song. And then he sings in a chorus for the first time. It takes a really dark turn. says, I got a woman all, all day. I got a woman she won't be true now. I got a woman stay drunk all the time. I got a little woman. I said, I got a little woman that she won't be true. Any more hands? Any else recognize that? A few more. A few. Just so you know. My preteen suspicions were confirmed because they Googled it in advance of this talk to ball all day in these three workouts. I, I thought so when I was a preteen listening to this for the first time. Thankfully, in 1970, they had a little more discretion in their own song lyrics. Now they will be much more explicit, but uh, they used that euphemism to talk about something wants to sleep around all day. I got it when she won't be true. Let's see if any of you get this. This is the second verse. Sunday morning when we go down to church, see the men folks standing in line. They say they come to pray to the Lord. When I heard that when I was a teenager, I thought, oh, it's really sweet. He's got a reference to church going in the sky. It's wonderful. It's something we expect that this man this week. And then I'll say, these guys look all nice. They're all dressed up for church. They're all eyeing my girl. Maybe they're sleeping. In the evening, when the sun is sinking low, everybody's with one day left. I walk the town, he was searching all around, looking for my sweet foreign girl. 
So she's either sneaking around all over the town or she's a cop. The street corner girl. And then the final part at the end of this scene on the way out. Hey, hey, what can I do? I got a little Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hear what I say? I got a little ball. This is Led Zeppelin. 1970. And if you had gone to Led Zeppelin in 1970, or actually today, if you went to Robert Plant or Jimmy Page, and you said, you realize that you sang out loud the book of Hosea. <laughs> they would say, I don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea. This is the book of Hosea right there. You can enjoy it right there. That is the book of Hosea in a song in our and guys, I wanted to say this in kind of a cutesy, cozy way that this little song is handful, because my guess is that some of you have gone through this for the unfaithful. And if you haven't gone through this, you almost certainly know someone who has. And it's no laughing matter. I know four. I know four guys who've gone through this, dealing with their what they love. And it's so agonizing people. And that's what this is all about. So to say, God says our relationship with him is like a, a marriage. And it's not a subtle message. It comes out right away at the beginning of the book. As soon as you start reading the book of Hosea, he says to God said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flavored harlotry, forsaking the Lord. You don't have to guess what the book of Hosea is all about. You don't have to read the whole thing and look back and say, ah, that's what it is. God just tells you right up front. So to say, I'm not going to go marry an unfaithful woman. She's going to break your heart. And I'm doing it because the people are unfaithful to me. Are they broken heart? And the point is that you are supposed to see this and understand that God says, you must understand me as your husband, not just as your king, who I am, not just as your master, not even just as your friend. You must understand me as your husband. And that's actually not a thing that's unique just to Hosea. Isaiah 54 says, has a verse that says, Your maker is your husband. And Jeremiah says, I was a husband to them, declared the Lord. God does not come to Hosea and say, Just like Isaiah and Jeremiah, I want you to tell the people that I'm a husband to them, and I want you to live it out. Your whole life is going to be a demonstration project for this message. You're going to live this. You're going to feel it's like you betrayed. You're going to be a husband, just like I did. Now, how is our relationship with God like a marriage? These are three points uh, straight from Keller's sermon. I'll amplify them a little bit. First of all, marriage must be your number one priority. Just like our relationship with the Lord, marriage must be your one, number one priority. If you go to your wife and you say, honey, I want you to know you're right there or toward the top. I mean, I've got my job. No one else having kids. Uh, and I've got some plans for the future. Like, there's a lawn. There's the lawn itself. It takes a lot of time, but you're easily the top five. Even of course, your marriage falls apart. Marriage has to be your number one priority. We all you hear the guy who's a joke all the time, happy wife, happy life, and guys who say that kind of roll their eyes and joke, they shouldn't. It's true. Their marriage must be your number one priority if you want a healthy marriage, and God says the same my relationship with you. Marriage, secondly, marriage is a relationship of intimacy. You can hide lots of things from other people, you can hide your temper. Your reactions, you can hide your gut. You can't hide from your spouse. Your spouse sees through all that stuff. So it's supposed to be 
relational intimacy and God is saying, I don't want you to know me from afar. I don't want you to just know about me. I want you to experience me. I want to have an intimate relationship with you. And thirdly, marriage is a relationship of life-changing potency. Everyone else can think of your failure. Your wife says you are success. It has the power to transform you and change you. Everyone else can say something about you. And you're saying, no, that's not true. I see the real you. That has the real power to change you. And when, when Willie Keller brings us out, just to kind of go through this more, he says, what God's trying to do is evoke the moment when the bridegroom stands at the altar and looks down the aisle, and the bride comes into view for the first time in her wedding dress, and the heart just sips deep. And the, the groom just says, I just I want to run down the aisle, sweep you off your feet, take you in my arms, lay down my life for you. That's the way God looks at us. And if you, if, seriously, if you came in this morning and you feel like God is my king, if you're primary here and after God, he's my king. And I've let him down again. Laura, I'm so sorry to let you down again. I know I'm trying to be a better subject tomorrow. I should let you down again. The understanding God as your husband is transformative. And it's supposed to be. The, the idea that God has an aesthetic experience looking at you. To understand that God looks at you the way a bridegroom looks at his bride says, when I see you, my heart seems to beat. I'm so enraptured with you. I'm so enamored with you. I'm so in love with you. That has the power to transform your life. It's not just that sort of what we say. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's meant to be this kind of relationship. But that's it. That's what it's supposed to be. Our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. That's that's where Hosea, the book of Hosea comes in. It's God says, take her to chapter one, verse two, take her to yourself as an adulterous wife. He's going to be unfaithful to you and death of your Now, why would God do that? You see, God can do a couple of reasons. One for the benefit of Hosea personally. He's saying, you're a prophet, and most prophets know about me. I'm going to let you, Hosea, I'm going to let the other prophets experience something about me and my nation the other prophets get together. You're going to understand me in a way that all the prophets can't. There's not going to live. By the way, Stop referring to this. Any of you who belong to this personally, you've got to leg out, perhaps, on the rest of us, because you understand something about the nature of God and how he feels more than the rest of us. That was Hosea for Hosea's benefit. What about Gomer? Gomer's the name of his wife. What about Gomer for her benefit? God might have said, you know, for you, Gomer, I want to understand what it's like and transformative love come into your life and the power that can change you. And so, Gomer, for them personally, you can see that. And, and they, they have a family together. They have three kids together. And the names are interesting. I'll just the second. The second one is called Not My Loved One. And the third one is just, in Hebrew, it's trying to come away. But it can be translated just Not Mine. And my version said, it said, Not My People. Because anything actually got responded, name this one Not My People because these are not my people. So can you imagine in the whatever delivery room that they had at the time, the third one, Gomer gets birth to the third one, they look at Jose and say, What do you want to leave the kid? He says, I got a name for it, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> and that tells you, and it's all through chapter two, Gomer never stopped being faithful. Gomer, she started off that way and never stopped breaking his heart and, and cheating on him. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it's just poetry, God. Chapter 2, verse 2, now it's like God speaking and reflecting on this. But chapter 2, verse 2 says, Pleading with your mother. So it's almost like 
Jose is on the children. Leave with your mother, please. She is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look of her face and the unfaithfulness of between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as fair as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. To the anger of the storm, that's chapter 2, verse 3. The next verse, God will return to the children. Upon our children also, I will have no mercy, because they are children of boredom. For their mother has played the war. She can see them as acted shameful. That's chapter 2. And then by chapter 3, she is with another woman. She was something else. To be displayed with me. So what God is saying is, Hosea, the whole book of Hosea is here to tell us we have two problems. First of all, we don't understand. God says the whole book is written, so you have empathy. The whole book is, a, is about empathy. I want you to put yourself in my shoes. I want you to feel what it's like to feel the way I feel. So what God is saying is when you, if you just think of me as a subject, the king, you'll say, well, I break the king's rules, the king is angry. And when a slave to a master, that's your paradigm for your relationship with God, you'll say, when I break the master's rules, the master gets angry. But when you realize I'm your husband, you understand I'm not just getting angry. Sin is not just breaking God's rules, it is breaking this stuff. So in Joel, you saw the reaction of God saying, the proper just response to your sin is complete devastation, unbelievable anger. And now in Hosea, see God saying, the proper response to your sin is not just anger, but to break my heart. And he say, like, say, if you want if you want the image of what it feels like to be, think about your life when it comes to the Because that's the reaction. So we don't understand God. And secondly, we don't understand ourselves. Because as men, you read this book and we say, oh wow, it must be tough to be Hosea. Think about what it would be like to be Hosea. If God were to call you to say, go marry a prostitute, wow, that would be hard. I'm not trying to do that. And you start reading that way, you are inserting yourself in the narrative as Hosea. And some of you are supposed to have empathy for God. You're supposed to see it or do those eyes. What would it be like to be Hosea? What would it be like to be God? God wants it to be God. But we are not Hosea in this story. In this narrative, Hosea is God. We are Gomer. We are Gomer. We are the unfaithful wife. There's a little theological controversy at the beginning of the book that I skipped over. And the theological controversy is, was Gomer unfaithful on the day they were married. And the text says, go marry a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. But there are commentators who say that can't possibly be right. She must have been pure and innocent on the day they were married because that would sound like God was commanding one of his prophets to enter into a simple relationship so that can't be interpretation. I know it says that, but it can't really mean that. And the problem with that is that whole interpretation is twofold. One is, it's not a sin to marry so much sinner, because if that's the case, none of our lives can be married any of us. Right? It's not a sin to enter the marriage of someone who's a sinner. Secondly, that we've got the whole meaning of the book. The whole purpose of the book is Romans 5 8. God demonstrates his own love towards this, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, we are not here as a different stone God. That is, and then fell in the education of poetry. We were messed up, sinful people from the get go. We were dead in our trespasses, and yet God understood. Put yourself in no shoes. Go. 
Homer's depiction of complete sexual addiction. You know, can't help us. There's a verse, there's a verse that Greg spoke about Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. There's a verse in Jeremiah that people say, you, you know, it's, we, we love foreign gods. It's no use. It's no use. I can't help myself. It's just no use. I love foreign gods. I can't stay away. And that's, that is a picture of addiction. But you can't help yourself. Tim. One quick addition. Harlotry is not a sin that would exclude a woman from being married, from a man marrying a woman. So they break out and Solomon as an example. Adultery is the sin that, for that excludes a woman from being married because the only just punishment for adultery is stoning. So death is the punishment for adultery. That's not the punishment for adultery. Good. Okay. So I think that also takes away from an alternative interpretation. So that's not the Okay. So by chapter three, Gomer is enslaved to one of to somebody else. But before we get to that, let's do a quick flyover of the rest of the book and we'll come back. And then we can hopefully end a little bit early and take some time for comments and questions. So chapters one through three are all, all about the prodigal life. The rest of the book is about the prodigal people. And while the first half, the first portion, there's one through three, it's written in terms of a marital relationship, the rest of the point is it's the message of judgment. The indictment, the verdict, the plea, or the cry, the crimes, and the judgment. And that's the message of judgment, and then you get the message of restoration at the end of the book. We'll cover this really quickly, just one or two verses from each one of the sessions. First of all, we go back to chapter 4, verse 6a, when people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you for being my priest. We don't want this accusation to be true of us. First of all, keep in mind, Jeremiah 9, verse 24, I think the most supposed to this, that he knows what? And understands me. So it's not just head knowledge, it's understanding me. That's kind of the point of the book that goes there. I don't want you just to know me, I want you to understand what it's like to be me. But my people are destroyed for lack of lack of knowledge. And if we're applying commercial for this Bible study, for the land of the world, this is why we're here. Right? And the point of this, by the way, is not that you come Saturday morning for, to, to see a show, to see someone talk about it. But the point of this Bible study is that we're all in the Word, all during the week. So if you don't read it, you're going to read it, and Dr. Possible, because we're reading where we're at that, we're going to be the Word, in the Word, all the time, every day. And then we're going to talk about it on Saturday. That's one thing. The second thing, by the way, about this Bible study, when you come here, we want you to see, say, um, like I'm not a paid professional, I'm just a guy who works at a bank. And so your reaction should be, if some clown like Jim Rescue who works at a bank can study the word and understand it, certainly I can do that. Right? That should be your reaction. If lay people like us can get up and say, we can just study the word and find the word and understand it. It's, it's supposed to be the, uh, the um, epitome of that biblical concept of the priesthood of all believers. Amen. You should look at it and say, shoot. The empowering of the Holy Spirit, the big wise counselor. The empowering of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the indictment. Five verse fifteen. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And this is God saying, I'm afflicting you, but I'm afflicting you for a reason and a purpose to bring you to repentance. That's the indictment and the verdict. Now the plea of Israel. This one is really bitter. 
with the beautiful verses. Let's read them together and I'll tell you why. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Beautiful verse, right? And the next verse is going to be in red because this next verse was for a long time my favorite verse in the whole Bible and I had it on the plaque on my desk in college. So let us know, say it's experience, so let us know, let us prep on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as a dog, and he will come to us like a rain, like a spring rain, walking in. So beautiful. A lifetime of pressing on to know the Lord. His, his knowing him, the ability to know him is dead certain. He is reliable. He will come to us like the rain. Times of refreshing, like the spring rain water year. Beautiful person. But they're bittersweet. And they're bittersweet because there's really no evidence that there ever was a revival in the northern kingdom. So these were the words of Hosea. He was writing a script for the people. He was saying, This is what these are the words you are supposed to say. You should be saying, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us. But they didn't. They were supposed to say these words, but they never did. They did. That was the plea they were supposed to do. Now the reply of the Lord, for I delight, chapter 6, verse 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And this is from the New American Standard Version of the NIC, it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the ESV, it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Let me get the idea. God says, I don't want just head knowledge, I want to change life. And there's an old song by Keith Green, uh, some of you might remember, it says, To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. This is what God is saying to us. I don't like loyalty rather than sacrifice. Why don't you just go through the motions? And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Jesus actually quotes this verse twice in Matthew 9 and in Matthew 12. Matthew 9, verse 13 says, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call righteous. Those sinners. Praise the Lord, that's us. Right? And then to drive all this, to drive this point home, the crime to Israel, we'll say it's seven. It's seven verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart when they wail in their beds. For the sake of rain and new wine, they send themselves. They turn away from me. So you know, they're wailing on their beds, all right. They're not there wailing because of their circumstance. They're wailing because they're the desire of prosperity and comfort. To have their life fixed. I'm not going to find out to know me. He's supposed to be the incident. He asked for a new want. That's the crimes. One of the prophecy and judgment was a famous verse. But if you wonder where it is in the Bible, here it is. Isaiah 8, verse 7. If they stole in, they will reap the world. That's the judgment. So you have the indictment, the verdict, the plea, the reply, the crimes, the judgment. Those are all the message of judgment in Hosea 4. And after that, the message of restoration. Now that's chapter 11 through 14. I don't want to look at the whole thing. I'm just going to pick out one verse and highlight this for you. And I'm doing that for a reason. Hosea 11, verse 8. Listen to the way God feels when he says this. How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassion is. What God is saying, this is, again, if you've gone through this, if you know people have gone through this, this isn't the feeling saying, I love you, but you're killing me. 
I love you, but why are you doing this to me? I love you, I hate you at the same time, but I still love you. This is like, look at it. Hosea 11 verse 8, this is the God of the universe. You know, the anguish of his heart. Like, I'm torn apart inside of you. I feel with love, but I have justice as well. It's amazing that God would even say this. So this whole little outline I just gave you is actually from the Bible study model. This legal outline. This another commentator had a different view of it. He did it like this. He said, really, if you look at the whole book of Hosea, you step back, it's judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. It's pattern again and again. It's you, you are, you are filled with sin. The land commits harlotry against me. You're filled with slavery, but I love you. But how do you do this to me? But I love you. And that, that's that one song I put up earlier. I didn't go long here because I was going to the end. And they're fading out. The singers are saying, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Because that's the way you feel. Like the torn up inside. I love you, but I want it. Why are you doing this to me? And that's amazing that God himself would feel this way. So, for example, I read that verse earlier, chapter 2, that poem God's talking about their adultery. And he says, even the children, even the children, I'm mad at them too. But by the end of chapter 2, uh, by the end of chapter 2, verse 23, he named the children. For the children was not my loved one and not my people. Chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I will show my love to the one I call, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So mad at you. I love you so much. So, all that brings us to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea 3. At this point, remember, Gomer is in slavery and she's up for auction. We're going to read it together. It's very short. We're going to open together paragraph by paragraph. Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet in adulteries. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raising cakes. So I bought her for myself with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Okay, so a couple of quick points before we get to the, the real meaning of the passage. First of all, what's up with raising cakes? Uh, <laughs> and I gotta explain this because if I don't, it becomes a distraction. Like, what's up with raising cakes? What is that? All, all great, drying, putting in the cake. But that also became very important in idol worship. And you would go to wherever the idols were, you would present the cakes and then consume them as part of the work of the false God. Thank you. I think that's exactly right. I think the reason it's mentioned here is because if it, if it sounds petty, here in this text, the way he's mentioning it, I think it's meant to sound heavy. In other words, it's like if I said, you left this church and went to another church and they have cupcakes at the service. <laughs> you left for the cupcakes. And, and he's saying, you know, look, you've been just loyal to me. It's a huge spiritual issue and on a cosmic scale, and you love the reason cakes. Second. She's with someone else, but the writer does not give us a whole lot of detail of who she's with or why. You just know that she's owned by somebody else. Could be another lover. Could be her pimp. It could be that she got into debt because oftentimes you're a slave because you got into debt. Maybe she, she was making money for her prostitution, spent money she didn't have, but I could always, always make more money until that ran out. And she's in debt, but either way, she's a slave. Thirdly, 
The going rate for slaves in this time was not 15 shekels, it was 30 shekels. But she goes for half price. Now, some people say, well, no, this is just thinking about the barley. So he has 15 shekels of silver, but he also has a homer and a half of barley. So to get to 30, the homer and a half of barley must have been worth 15 shekels. 15 plus 15, that's not even 30. So that's what the barley means. I don't think so. And some commentators pointed this out, so I got this. The barley is actually significant. It's not a throwaway comment. In Numbers 5.15, it says the barley was an offering for one accused of adultery. Mm-hmm. Numbers 5.15 says the man shall bring his, his wife to the priest and sh- shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of Eva of barley he shall not put oil on it or put frankincense on it, no just enough. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, grain offering of memorial, reminder of the name. The barley is significant. He's winning her the bidding. He's saying, We all know what you did. Right? So, when Keller talks about this, he makes an incredible word picture of what that would have been like. We're going to borrow from that. So he says, At this time, the way this auction would have, played, would have taken place in this culture is going to be taking place right in the public square, right in the marketplace. And, and she would have been standing there, and, and so that all, all the bidders would know what they were getting, she would have been stripped naked, otherwise, people would know what they're getting. And she'd be standing there, and you could imagine that if you're in that situation, remember, we're over in the story, right? Now you're going you're to see what you're in the world. And everyone's going to bid on you. The only thing they do is just close your eyes, shut your eyes as far as you can. And you're going to hear people say things like, for her, two shots. Okay, see. Four times. And you hear a voice, ten shudders. The woman heard that voice and said, That's my husband. That's my husband. What is he doing here? I haven't seen him in years. What is he doing here? Why would he be here living on me? And you gotta understand that this, these are not huge or troubles, it's kind of a small town. So in that town, all the gods, everyone would have known this story. In fact, it's highly likely that the guys that Jose is bidding against also slept with his wife. And so they would look at him and say, You, don't you know what you did? You 11 shots. And he was saying, I know, 12. And they would say, you are some kind of fool, you're some kind of idiot. To bring yourself in a town square and be humiliated like this, 15 shekels, that's it. That's all she's worth, not a penny more. And you'd say, okay, I'll match you 15 shekels, and I'll throw it to And I'm speculating that making this part up, but you could hear the, uh, the guy running off and say, well, you know, we should go take one here. And Jose said, yeah, well, I got like this. Sold and 15 shekels of silver. And he would have Jose and put his cloak around him to cover her shame. And then he would have the opportunity to speak to her one on one, maybe for the first time in years. And what do you think he says to her? The next verse tells us, I'll pick up a second. What do you think he says to her? Does he say, Yes, I'm talking to you. After what you put me through, I own you now. I just bought you. You're my slave now. Now you're going to pay. Now you just see the thought. Say that to her, then speak very tenderly, very compassionately to her. He says, verse 3 Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not pay the heart. Show you have a man. So I also will be toward you. 
You deal with addiction, you know, at least talk about the trying out period. But he doesn't come here and say, now you're going to pay. These are both kindness and restoration. And you get that because in the beginning, God says, go again, love a woman. He doesn't say, go again. God's the one who's commanded to say, to go out and live up. But he doesn't say, go again, buy a slave. He says, go again, love a woman. So Isaiah said, okay, you should stay with me for many days. I want to build, I want to rebuild our relationship. I want to build a home with you. I want it like it was. It's not what it's supposed to be. We're going to be together. And then, there's no actual record of going or happens. It's where that story ends. So I'm going to speculate again and go out on the limb. Because I like to think that to be consistent with the whole story of Hosea, the whole story of restoration, that the two of them did restore their marriage and grew all together. Is that's consistent with the whole plot of the book of Isaiah? So I like to think, again, pure speculation, that when we're in glory, we're going through the receiving line of the minor prophets, Diane is teaching, Joel is teaching, Dayan is teaching, you're going to read that with the message. You're going through the receiving line of the minor prophets, and you come to Hosea and say, yes, I remember your story. And you chat with Hosea a little bit, and I, I like to think, and after a while, Jose would say, Jim, wait right here, just let him watch the game. And we'll look, go over in the office and say, Go over, I read your story. And the fact that you are here is painful. Is someone like me, screwed up like me, glad you're being cursed. And I think Gomer will look at her husband, Jose, the former husband, Jose, and say, yeah, you know, Jim, Jose and I were talking about this before you came here. You can't go here for you. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You got me. Let me show you. So this whole thing is the build up to verse four. Because this the verse four, all this whole story about the betrayal, the harlotry, everything else, the words of kindness and tenderness, the words of restoration, verse three, are all about the words of restoration of Israel, verse four. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without inner prince, without sacrifice or sacred pilgrim, and without ephod or household items. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord of God, David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord as was good as in the last days. Finish this up really quickly, because the key to understanding why these are words of restoration is David their king, because nowhere are they ever supposed to worship David their king on any kind of evil basis for God. It's not coming out to see and worship. God and David is a part of the throne. This cannot be referenced to David. It's not. It's reference to the true and better David, the son of David, who was to sit on the throne. And we know that. Because right back to the second chapter of Acts, when Peter did that other thing I'm going to talk about, where he was quoted Joel, Peter also says in writing Acts chapter 2, verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him not only that he would place on one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see the king. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses. Cuts of the cliff, by three thousand came to Christ. In Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist come up to Jesus, so they say to him, it's Matthew 9, verse 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? 
And in Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus replies, and says, and Jesus said to Adam, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn. Once the bridegroom is with them, can they? The disciples of John must have fallen over, have just fallen over, and said, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You're not right. You're the husband of Jeremiah. You're the husband for that fellow there. You are the husband of Satan. And Jesus would look him in the eye and said, You're right. Jesus is the husband. So, to wrap up, he is the bridegroom. He is our husband. He paid the price to buy us from all our slaves. Jesus is the one who left his father's throne above, came into the marketplace down in our world. Takes his cloak of righteousness, puts it around us, covers our shame so that he can bring us home, create our own lives. Jesus is the truth of the And that is the gospel according to Jesus. Okay, pretty much close out of time. We'll have a few comments. Tim. Excellent job. Just a couple of quick comments. Chapter 6, at the end of verse 1, it leads into verse 2, which gives us the messianic place. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Right. And the, the only other thing that I would suggest we all do is pay attention to the chapter 14, verse 9. The very concluding verse which says, Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous will walk in them. But the rebellious stumble. Who is wise? Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. You've given us a lot to think about today in regard to Hosea and what God has said to us. And now the question is, are we wise? Will we apply that knowledge to our lives and walk rightly in that's right. That's, my prayer. That's great. Let him close close to this and he knows and understands me. You know what? It's 9 15. Let's just quickly close this cold prayer because I'm trying to exactly the thoughts. All right, let's just close this down. Well, wait, thank you. If you have one comment, we can go to the prayer. Sure. They don't close in the prayer. Why It's great. All right. Hey, I think it's good to know that this constant analogy of idolatry with adultery throughout the Bible. From the beginning then, all the way through Revelation. And that is God. But it's interesting how you pointed out in chapter 4, the knowledge of God, because that points to a more positive reference also in the Bible. That, and I'm thinking of in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read, I think in verse 12, the son of the Eli did not know God. That same root, they do not God, is, and in, you get to Genesis chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife when she did conceive. So that it's not just that we are all adulterers toward God, but ideally God wants an intimacy that transcends the intimacy between husband and wife in the very marriage act. That's how deep. He wants that energy. And to prove your point, the way to this, but the Hebrew word for knowing is that someone is known as presence and know the Lord is the same word for knowing the life in the Right. I want you to have a deep, deep connection with you. All right. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, 
We give you thanks for this wonderful lesson, a lesson that we may have heard before, but we need to repeat it to ourselves. For true knowledge comes through repetition of what we already know, and we know that we, like Gomer, are all sinners. We do not deserve grace, preparation, or any type of salvation, and yet, while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to us, just like Jose, to redeem us. So for this, we give you praise and glory, and we delight in your presence, and we seek to ever know you deeper and deeper every day. All this we pray in the name of your son and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.